Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, December 5th, 2022. Simi Gupta joins me today to talk about cervical length screening. Last week, Simi and I spoke about cervical length screening in the context of high-risk women due to a prior preterm birth. Today, we're going to talk about cervical length screening in all pregnant women, including those who are low risk. Should it be done? How should it be done? And if the cervix is short, what do we do about it? Next week, in keeping with the theme of a short cervix, we're going to redrop the podcast Andre Rebarber and I did on cerclage, which is the surgical treatment of a short cervix. All right, reminder for all of you listening on Apple or Spotify, please, if you could, rate this podcast, preferably with five stars. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next Monday. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Dr. Simi Gupta, welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? How you feeling? I heard you're a little bit under the weather. I am. Thank you for having me back. I have a little bit of a cold that my toddler gave me, but otherwise doing good. That's good. They're just, they're just, you know, piles of infestation. Those kids, it's unbelievable. That's exactly right. He started preschool and I think this is what I'm in for now. (laughs) (laughs) You now have every bug that every child in the preschool has. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I hear. Wonderful. Well, you sound okay. Maybe a, a slight, a few notes lower than normal, but it's all good. We get we get baritone semigupta today. Sounds good. And we're going to be talking today about cervical length screening. So what is a cervical length? What are we talking about here, Semi? Right. So as most people know, your cervix usually shortens and then starts to dilate or open when you go into labor. And for most people, this happens towards the end of the pregnancy at eight or nine months. But for some people, it starts to shorten or or dilate earlier in the pregnancy. And those patients are at a higher risk for preterm labor. So what we've discovered is that if we, that we can measure the length of the cervix on ultrasound. And if we find that it's shortening earlier in the pregnancy, then we know that those patients are at a higher risk for preterm labor. And we can talk about different management strategies in that case. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting that there's an ultrasound test that we can do that has a lot of prediction for what's going to happen in terms of labor you know, weeks or months down the road. I think that that's a really neat concept that, I don't know, most people find kind of fascinating that that's even an option, you know, because usually it's the end of pregnancy and I'm, you know, doing an ultrasound of the baby and I'm looking at the heartbeat and, you know, the baby's waving to us and like, does the ultrasound tell you what I'm going to deliver? I'm like, well, this doesn't. (laughs) If the baby held up a sign saying, I'm going to deliver on Tuesday, (laughs) that'd be awesome. But we don't get that. But we're talking about way earlier in pregnancy, like well before people are thinking about, delivery and labor. This is like, you know, we started like the second trimester, you know, like 16 weeks, it's pretty early. And that that could have really relevant predictive value for later in pregnancy is quite a concept. I agree. This is definitely one of the big things that's kind of come out in predicting preterm birth in the last maybe what, 10, 20 years or so. Yeah. And then, as you said, there is 
potential to intervene if the cervix is short. It's not just information, although there is an argument to be made that the information alone might be valuable, but there is the potential to intervene. And we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, we have this idea that you can screen the cervix with an ultrasound. So the first question I want to ask you is, when do we do it? So when do we start it? How often might we do it? When do we finish it? How does that work timing-wise? Yeah, so we usually start somewhere around 16 weeks or the beginning of the second trimester. The reason for that is kind of the lower uterine segment or the lower part of the uterus has to start to develop so that we can measure the cervical length fairly clearly. And that starts to happen around the beginning of the second trimester. So we usually start around 16 weeks. And then when you could technically measure it at any point after that, and when people stop measuring it, it kind of depends on when they feel like the information is less useful to them. So many people will stop measuring after about 24 weeks because some interventions haven't been shown to be, aren't done after 24 weeks. Other people do it later as far as 32 weeks. And how often you do it kind of depends on the circumstances. It can be every two weeks, it can be every week, it can be just once in the middle of the pregnancy. So it just kind of depends on why you're doing it and what you're looking for. Yeah, I think those are a lot of really important points you brought up. The first about the sort of the earliest we would do it. You know, people ask, you know, at eight weeks and 10 weeks and 12 weeks, can we measure the cervix? And you can, but the problem, as you said, is we don't really, we, we can tell where the cervix, you know, begins, I guess, on the outer edge of the cervix, but it's hard to tell where, what is the other end of the measurement that we're going to do because it sort of morphs into the lower part of the uterus and you really need the uterus to sort of balloon out till you can differentiate like what's cervix and what's uterus. And so earlier than 16 weeks, again, we'll get measurements if someone really needs it or wants it, but it's not going to be so predictive because it's not as accurate, so to speak, of what's actually the cervix that we're measuring. So I agree, usually 16 weeks, rarely we'll do a little bit earlier, but that's about it. You know, the upper limit of when you measure it, that's really an area controversy. I know we do measure it past 24 weeks and sort of, you know, going around the country and talking to people or lecturing, you know, people get really mad about that sometimes. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you do that. You can technically, you know, there's studies about measuring it at the end of pregnancy to sort of predict when someone's going to go into labor, you know, at the end, we, we don't do that, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not a particularly dangerous test or harmful test. It's just, you know, potentially a little bit annoying, I would say, you know, it's, it's a vaginal ultrasound. That's what we're doing. And we'll talk about that as well. But as you said, it's really case by case and it's sort of different clinics do differently, different doctors recommend it differently. Within a certain place like ours, it's based on, you know, who the patient is and what her risk factors are. So that's when we do it. And we sort of just touched on how do we actually measure the cervix? Like what are our options with ultrasound? Right. So the the most accurate way of measuring the length of the cervix is by doing a transvaginal ultrasound. But, you know, people have started to do other studies on doing abdominal ultrasound to look at the cervix because for some patients, it's uncomfortable to have a transvaginal ultrasound and also takes some more time and different things. So you can look at the cervix on abdominal ultrasound as well. It's just not quite as accurate as a transvaginal ultrasound. So sometimes we'll start with an abdominal ultrasound. And if it looks like it might be a little bit short, then we will do a transvaginal ultrasound to get 
the most accurate measurement. Other times we'll go straight to a transvaginal ultrasound and it depends on the indication. And what do you mean by that? Like for what indications might we automatically look vaginally versus let's look abdominally first and only if it sort of looks suspicious do we look vaginally? Right. So if someone's at a high risk for a preterm delivery, then we usually say we need to start with a vaginal ultrasound and get the most accurate measurement possible. For a patient who is low risk for a preterm delivery, then we will usually look on an abdominal ultrasound at just a routine 20-week or detailed anatomy scan. And only if it looks short, then will we do a transvaginal ultrasound. Yeah, and this is another area of controversy around the country and around the world of exactly what is the best strategy, right? So, I mean, you you can either say, I'm going to do a vaginal ultrasound on every single person who's pregnant at some point in pregnancy and make sure to do it 100% of the time because it's the most accurate, reliable, predictive, whatever you want to say. And that some people do that, and that's that's reasonable. The upside is you'll get a lot of information for everybody. The downside is everybody has to have a vaginal ultrasound, which, like you said, adds a lot of time, can add cost, can be uncomfortable for people. Another option is to say, we're going to do an abdominal ultrasound on everybody. And only if it's abnormal or possibly abnormal, will we then sort of reflect to the vaginal ultrasound. And then there's something in between where you say, all right, which is what we do for some people who we think are really high risk enough that we need to get the best measurement possible, no matter what, we'll do a vaginal automatically. And for others who are sort of, you know, lower risk and more typical risk, We'll sort of start with the abdominal only if it looks concerning when we go to vaginal. I'm not saying our way is the best way. There's, you know, people who do it all three ways and they're all reasonable. It's just a little bit different based on, you know, people's practice patterns and their training and potentially the availability of vaginal ultrasound and how many machines they have and how many patients have. There's there's also logistics that go into this. So people are going to sort of see different things around the country. Right. I completely agree. It kind of depends on the patients and the ultrasound unit and the resources available. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we've learned over the years is that there does seem to be value to doing some assessment of the cervix in the second trimester versus not looking at all, right? And whether that assessment is abdominal, which usually people are getting ultrasound anyways abdominally, so it just means sort of like making sure to get that picture to look at the cervix or whether it means automatically doing vaginal versus let's do nothing. I think that there's been a lot of good evidence showing that it it makes sense to do some sort of assessment of the cervix on everybody. Right. And, and, and that is partially true because, you know, again, some women have risk factors for preterm deliveries, the biggest risk factor being a prior preterm delivery. But if it's your first pregnancy, you're still at a small risk for a preterm delivery, somewhere around 10 to 12 percent. And for those patients, it is useful to have some assessment of the cervix so that women may not have to have a preterm delivery before we realize that they're at high risk for having one. Yeah, I think one of the big reasons this changed, because when I was training, there was no sort of standard recommendation to assess the cervix by ultrasound, again, one way or another. And I think the reason is there's this paradigm in screening that you're really not supposed to do a screening test on everybody on the whole population unless there's some intervention if you find a problem, right? Because otherwise you're just going to be telling a whole bunch of people you've got a problem and there's nothing we can do about it. And you may choose to do that on an individual level and say, all right, I, you know, I believe for my patients it's worthwhile to know this, but to sort of recommend it universally is really tough if there's nothing you can do about it. And 
the next thing we're going to talk about, which is sort of what do you do if the cervix is short? I think that over the past 10, 20 years, the data supporting the various treatments that are available for someone with a short cervix has gotten better and better and better such that there really is something we can offer people with a short cervix that seems to be helpful. And so it makes a lot more sense to check everybody, even those who are at the lowest risk, again, in some capacity, whether it's abdominally or, or vaginally. I, I completely agree. So let's talk about those treatments. So what is, if someone has a short cervix, oh, actually, I should ask you, how do we define a short cervix? Like what is short and what is not short? Right. So there's kind of different standards that people use. They might use the like a specific length. They might use, you know, the 10th percentile for gestational age. The standard that many people use and what we use is less than 2.5 centimeters. Right. So someone's cervix is, you know, under that, we're going to call it quote unquote short. And if it's longer than that, we'll call it normal. Obviously, there is a difference between someone who has 2.4 versus, you know, 0 0.4 right? Because those are both in the short category, but the 2.4 is clearly a better place to be than the 0.4. But that's sort of the cutoff that a lot of people use. So if we do see someone with a short cervix, what is the first treatment option that's available? Right. So the first treatment option that's available is vaginal progesterone. And I think, you know, when you were referring to the treatment options that are available you know, for for women who are pregnant with their first pregnancy, this is what we were talking about. So kind of finding out that vaginal progesterone can be given to a patient with a short cervix and it has been shown to decrease the risk of having a preterm delivery kind of changed how we approach screening many years ago. Yeah, and the data is really solid. It just seems that in, you know, study after study, if someone has a short cervix and you give them progesterone that's done vaginally pretty much, you know, once a day from the time it's discovered until either they deliver or they get to full term, 36, 37 weeks, it lowers the chance. It doesn't cure them. It doesn't mean that they won't deliver early, but it definitely lowers the chance from some percent to a lower percent. And again, not everyone with a short cervix is going to deliver early. In fact, probably the majority of them won't, but the risk is much higher than baseline and the vaginal progesterone does seem to lower it closer to baseline, back to where it should be, so to speak. Right. So this has been one of the great things that's kind of been discovered over the last few years. And as you said, it's it's given vaginally. Women are recommended to use it every night, once um, once a night, all the way up until hopefully they are full term or, or 37 weeks. Yeah. Any side effects from it or anything, you know, risks associated with it people should watch out for if they're prescribed vaginal progesterone? Right. So the great part about vaginal progesterone is that because it's not taken by mouth, it's vaginal, the side effects are usually very, very minimal. Obviously, progesterone is a hormone, so there can be some things that people report, such as headaches, nausea, breast tenderness, things like that. But for most people, there's minimal to no side effects. And there's definitely been no side effects that had uh, been shown to impact the baby or the pregnancy. Right. And also, typically, this is being recommended in the second trimester, you know, 16 plus weeks. And so, number one, there there does not seem to be any risk of birth defects with giving someone progesterone. But even if there were somehow some theoretical risk that we didn't know about or something like that, it's given after the baby's fully formed. So it really shouldn't have an impact on malformations or birth defects, which is great. All right. So what else is available other than vaginal progesterone if someone has a short cervix? 
Right. So the second thing that's a possibility is something called a cerclage. And what a cerclage is, is it is a stitch that's essentially put in around the cervix, so sewed in around the cervix to help keep it closed. And a cerclage is a surgical procedure, meaning women have to go into the the hospital and have the, the surgical procedure performed under or like a regional anesthesia. And then they usually go home the same day, but it is a surgery. And a cerclage is recommended um, for women who have a prior preterm delivery or in some cases, some other risk factor for a preterm delivery and a short cervix. So it's not recommended for everybody with a short cervix. It's usually recommended for women with a prior preterm delivery and a short cervix. Or it's recommended for women with a very, very short cervix or an open cervix. Yeah, and we, we've we recorded and we're going to drop also an entirely separate podcast on cerclage because it's, it's a very complex topic that deserves its own discussion and got its own discussion, actually. But I think just sort of conceptually, you know, as an overview, what what we're saying is, you know, progesterone is something that there's, it's sort of, there's reward and there's pretty low risk. So it's something we're much more likely to recommend to somebody. We're going to recommend it frequently, even past 24 weeks, for example. I mean, gestational ages is not as important to us. There aren't a lot of circumstances where we're like hesitant to prescribe vaginal progesterone. But for cerclage, it's a much bigger deal, right? It's a surgical intervention. It's a lot more invasive, obviously. There's a lot more potential repercussions. And so that's something we really reserve for someone who we're highly confident they need it. And that's, you know, basically earlier in pregnancy, various history based on the service itself. So it's used less often, but it is a potential intervention for someone with a short cervix, particularly someone with a prior preterm birth, as you said. But even sometimes people without, there's case-by-case basis where we might recommend it. Now, as you said before, there are some people who don't check the cervix after 24 weeks. And that's usually because historically we wouldn't place a cerclage past 24 weeks. And so they sort of said, all right, there's no point in screening. I always find it a little bit confusing why someone wouldn't screen the cervix after 24 weeks when you can give vaginal progesterone after 24 weeks. And I haven't really gotten a really good answer to that from people who are more religious about stopping checking the cervix at 24 weeks. I don't know if you've heard any good ones. No, I mean, I think... You know, as you know, most of the studies on vaginal progesterone only only enrolled women before 24 weeks. I think if we get some more data on women who use vaginal progesterone starting after 24 weeks, cervical length screening probably has a higher chance of being kind of more broadly used after that point. Right. Now, talk to me about the pessary. Here's where we really jump. We jump into the deep end of controversy here. Tell me about the pessary. So the so a pessary is basically a plastic donut shaped item and it's placed around the cervix kind of with this same idea as a cerclage. But instead of sewing a suture around the cervix, you actually just kind of put a little donut around the cervix to help keep it closed. The nice part about a pessary is we can just put it in an office. It takes a minute or two. It might be a little bit uncomfortable when we put it in, but then you don't feel it at all. So it uh, essentially has almost basically no risk to the patient. The downside of it is it just the studies on it haven't really, there haven't been as many studies on it, especially compared to cerclage or vaginal progesterone. So 
It might work. I think the data still has to kind of show how well it works and in what circumstances, but it also has no risk. So we usually start with vaginal progesterone or cerclage if needed or if we can and kind of use the pessary as a, a backup option. Yeah, what's what I find fascinating about pessary is it was not invented for women with a short cervix who are pregnant. It's sort of like this is a secondary use. You want to let our listeners in on why? why they were originally uh, invented? Right. So they were originally used for what's called prolapse, where either the uterus or the bladder or the rectal tissue was kind of coming out of the vagina. And so it's used for comfort in that purpose. And then this is a secondary use of it. Yeah. So when people are like, I'm getting a pessary, they're like, wait, that's odd. I'm kind of young for that, aren't I? Because usually they're in, in older women potentially who have, like you said, prolapse and either aren't candidates for surgery or don't want surgery or, you know, or surgery might not work or whatever it is. But it does seem to, it has been studied in pregnancy. And the other thing that's fascinating is, you know, when you when you look at the studies on pessary, it's really all over the place. I mean, you read one study that looks like it was, you know, really well designed and a good study and done well, and it seems to work great. And then you look at another study that was also, you know, well designed and it seems to not help at all. And how to sort of reconcile that, that there's, you know, studies that are both, you know, very good and seem to have, you know, everything you need to, uh, you know, make a good study come to totally opposite conclusions. And this is one of the reasons this is really debated over whether it works or doesn't work and to what degree and in whom and all this. And like you said, we, we sort of have it as an adjunct treatment, but it's not entirely clear exactly who it's going to help and to what degree. But again, fortunately with pessary, the stakes are pretty low because it's not a particularly risky intervention. It's nor painful or anything like that. Exactly. And so it's an option that we have for women who we do recommend the pessary. We place it and then we hopefully take it out around 36 to 37 weeks uh, when we want a patient to go into labor after that point. Now, what about things that are frequently recommended for someone with a short cervix, like bed rest, for example, or not having sex? What do you do in that situation? How do you counsel women? This is definitely something also controversial. And I would say it's something very kind of doctor to doctor specific, meaning all of us have our own opinions on this. I think, you know, many of us would agree that in general, there's not really any good data that shows that um, bed rest will decrease the risk of preterm delivery in a woman with a short cervix. So in a kind of a broad sense, we usually do not recommend bed rest. And not only is there not really data recommending it, there's also some data that says real full bed rest or women are just kind of feel obligated to stay in bed all day is, is bad for the mother's health. It increases their risk of blood clots in their legs or their lungs. And it also kind of deconditions them during pregnancy, which is not ideal. So in kind of a sense of true bed rest of not doing anything, the data says that's not beneficial and could be risky for mom. On the other hand, I think many of us sometimes say, you know, for women who are very high risk for a preterm delivery, maybe experiencing contractions or difficult or different physical discomforts, many of us will tell them to kind of take things easy a little bit, regular day-to-day -day activities, but maybe not any very intense exercise or other things like that. Yeah, I, I think this is one of the hardest things to talk about with people with a short cervix because, 
you know, they're, they're looking for answers, right? They're looking for us to tell them what to do. And I could do that, right? And it's, it's no sweat off my back to tell them what to do or what not to do. But it's, it's a little bit intellectually dishonest in a sense, because like you said, I think most of us are pretty, you know, confident that it's not a great idea to just lie in bed all day for the next, you know, three months, that there's a lot of downside to that. And as far as we know, there doesn't seem to be any upside. On the other hand, we're all a little bit skittish about saying, yeah, continue to train for the marathon while you have a short cervix. Like that just seems like not to be a good idea, even if I can't prove it to you. And so there's, there's probably some line in between those two, you know, extremes that's appropriate, but we don't know what it is and we don't know where it is. And we don't know, is it closer to the more bed resty side or the more activity side? And it's also probably different for each person. And right. it's hard to know exactly what to do. What, what I generally tell people, and this is sort of as best as I could come up with. And it's what I tell people is the best I can tell you is, you know, I say that, that there's some point in between. And I just tell people they have to individualize it. Meaning if they're doing something that's sort of normal activities and they feel totally normal, perfectly fine, then it's probably okay. Whereas if they sort of hit the point where they're like, all right, once I sort of exceed this amount, I start to feel crampy, I start to feel pressure, I just start to feel off, then it's time to back off. And that amount is going to differ for every person. I don't know if that's the best answer. I don't know if it's the right answer, but it seems to be the most reasonable one I could come up with to sort of help people figure out what to do in this circumstance. And obviously some people are more strict than what I tell them and they sort of stay and, you know, rest a little bit more and other people are more lenient than what I tell them and they, you know, work out a little bit more than, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to exactly tell people what to do in that circumstance. It's, it's tough. It is tough. And, and I, I would agree with you that it is really specific for, for each patient or each woman, meaning, you know, many women understand, many women kind of know how their bodies are and what makes them feel uncomfortable or in pain or, or different things. And so many women are, are able to kind of individualize this for themselves, you know, within kind of some general guidelines that we're able to give them. Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little, you know, trite, but, you know, listen to your body. It's, it's a real right. thing. It is a real thing. It's, right. Exactly. And what and about women are good at it. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I agree. And then what about with, with sex? Right. So, um, you know, for just a short cervix, again, sex has not been shown to, to increase your risk of preterm delivery, but, but there are some indications where we would recommend no intercourse. So for example, if you have a cerclage in place, we recommend no intercourse because it can create bleeding. If you have a pessary in place, we recommend no intercourse. But just for a short cervix, there's no data that shows that intercourse increases your risk of preterm delivery. Yeah, it, that's also a tough one because it's true. And I agree that there's no data that having sex is going to increase the risk of preterm delivery, but it does in many women increase contractions. And so a lot of women will then go on to have contractions. And since they have a short cervix, it's very concerning to them. And they may end up in the hospital getting checked for contractions. And so it's, again, one of these things where either you could say, you know what, your cervix is under a certain length. It's just not worth the risk. Don't have sex. Or try it, see how it goes, see if you have contractions or not. And again, try to individualize it. And there isn't a perfect answer. And people disagree about this. But there's probably, like, like with bed rest, is probably a different answer for each person. Right. I would agree with that. All right. So just as a review, we do cervical length screening in everybody who's pregnant. 
And I think most people around the country are doing it in some capacity. For our higher risk patients, we, we just go straight to a transvaginal ultrasound, either once or serially over the course of the second and maybe third trimester, again, based on their exact circumstances and risk factors. And for those who are at sort of a more typical risk or a lower risk, we generally just look abdominally and if it looks normal, then they're good to go. And if it looks borderline or shortened, then we'll go to transabdominal. And obviously, if someone comes in with specific complaints, you know, contractions or bleeding or this, we're going to be checking the cervix or doing a vaginal ultrasound, but we don't call that screening. That's a lot different. Screening is really someone who has no symptoms and we're just looking, just, you know, looking without any specific indication at that time. Right. That's exactly right. Simi Gupta. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Great talk. You don't know it now, but we're dropping your podcast back to back. So this will be, (laughs) we're going to get a lot of Simi Gupta. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. Great. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.